According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in John chapter 11. We return back to the resurrection of Lazarus episode, or the resuscitation of Lazarus episode, if you prefer a uh, distinction in terminology. Remember, a resurrection is when... uh, you take up the body of glory, the eternal body of glory, in which there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more dying. Uh, the former things have passed away. Uh, the episodes we have in Scripture of a miracle restoring physical life to a corpse, uh, those are resuscitations in that the bodies that they are returned to uh, remain their mortal bodies that are subject to uh, future uh, physical death. We'll be looking at those passages here today. All right, John chapter 11. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And that's basically as far as we got. He received word that it was urgent, and receiving word that it was urgent, he knew that he had to stick around for two more days before getting back. So, that's where we are. Let's take time for a prayer, make sure we're filled with the Spirit, and then we'll get to our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have today to assemble together. And Father, we we look to you to open the eyes of our understanding and teach us, Father, principles that we need to apply. And in a lot of ways, Father, uh, episodes like this are difficult in the sense that we've uh, uh, we're very familiar with the story. We've been taught uh, material from here uh, any number of times in the past, uh, Father, but uh, do not allow us in pride or arrogance to think that we uh, have, know everything there is to know about this chapter or have even approached the uh, exhausting the, the truth that's in this chapter. There's always more, Father. Your word is infinite. Your word is powerful. And we want to glean just a little bit more today. And we thank you for your blessings in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. In the outline then, we got through a couple of points. And uh, let me just run through them. Real quickly, and then we'll gain some new ground. Lazarus uh, comes uh, to us from the uh, Hebrew and actually from the Aramaic, but the Hebrew form is Eleazar, and Eleazar is very well known to us in the Old Testament. Eleazar was the son of Aaron. Eleazar became the high priest after Aaron died. Uh, Eleazar, you see in the Hebrew there, El Lazar, it would be how it'd be pronounced. And when you drop the initial uh, uh, Aleph, the initial consonant from El Lazar, it gets shortened to simply La Lazar, which is where we get uh, Laser, the, the name Laser, like Laser Wolf, the character in, in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. And so Laser is uh, really an abbreviation, like a nickname, turning Robert into Bob or something like that. You turn Eleazar into Laser. And, uh, and as such, then it comes across uh, into the Greek as Lazarus, and then uh, quite frequently, what the Latin does with it, it turns us into us. So Lazarus becomes Lazarus. And that's where we are in, the, in our English understanding of it. Now, uh, I do believe that he is different from the Lazarus, the poor leper that died and went to Abraham's bosom. The story of the uh, rich man and Lazarus. Um, I believe they are different Lazari in those two stories. Uh, I think had he been the same Lazarus, then John would have been quick to point that out. He did point out uh, that, by the way, this was the Mary who uh, anointed the Lord with ointment. So uh, he was in the mood to explain connections with people when he was writing this chapter. And it would have been very easy for him to say, uh, this is the same Lazarus, by the way, who um, who died and went to Abraham's bosom. Uh, there have been different attempts over the years to try to lock them together and to try to, you know, Describe that Luke chapter as well, what happened when Lazarus died and was in the ground for four days. Uh, but no, I do believe that uh, the poor leper died and stayed dead. And uh, this Lazarus, there's no mention of him being a leper. And uh, he did not stay dead when he 
came out of the ground. I also believe that he was sleeping during the four days of his physical death. And so uh, that is contrary to the story in Luke 16 where that Lazarus, the leper, uh, was conscious, aware of the comfort he was receiving with Abraham. And that's a, a, a difference as well. Death is normally a conscious awareness of the blessings of your presence with the Lord not a, uh, a uh, unconscious sleeping awareness. We'll talk about that today. Um, another identification, one that takes more work, is a lot of folks uh, try to, uh, they lock in on the phrase, uh, the one whom you love is sick, and uh, which is not Scripture saying that Jesus loved him, but the sisters saying that Jesus loved him. We do have an indication that Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus in verse 5. But because of the use of love there, they lock in on the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and they try to um, explore whether the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of this gospel, for example, uh, might not be the son of Zebedee, if it might be you know, Lazarus. And um, that actually is, is a legitimate uh, consideration. It ought to be evaluated and, and, and looked at. Uh, I disagree with it, it's, and most folks do, that John is the author of John. It's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Lazarus. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, I uh, still hold to that view. But you may, you may do some reading on it. Now, Mary and Martha, from point two, we know them because of uh, uh, episode number nine in the Prean ministry. Mary and Martha are known from the uh, story of Mary and Martha, where uh, Jesus is teaching Bible class and Mary is sitting at his feet. And uh, Martha is in the kitchen uh, growing more and more frustrated in her mental attitude sin that Mary is not doing more to help her in uh, in the kitchen. Uh, that is an episode, by the way, that does not feature Lazarus. And um, it's uh, it's an interesting episode there. Not clear that it takes place in Bethany either, by the way. And so there's probably more questions than answers as far as how episode nine relates here to episode number 26. All right, and where we uh, spent really the last few moments of our time last week was on um, episode uh, or point number three then. Jesus received the human message, but was already briefed on the divine assignment. When he gets the word in verses three and four here, he gets word in verse three, uh, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. He actually was fully briefed already. He knew about the sickness. He knew its duration. He knew its objective. He knew uh, what the assignment was going to be. And he knew that he could not just pick up and run off right away. He'd already been briefed that you're going to get uh, word of Lazarus' sickness. It's not going to result in his death, although he'll be dead before you get there. Uh, you cannot arrive before a certain date. You cannot arrive before a certain time. And that's something we want to identify with because we get impatient. We're 21st century American Christians and we are a microwave culture and society and things have to be done instantaneously, if not sooner. And uh, the idea of waiting, the idea of something that's too soon is, uh, is, is almost unthinkable from our, you know, our earthly perspective. It's like the idea of something being too big. You know, what are you talking about? You know, a congregation. We, we can't have too many people. We can't have too much money. It's the idea that it, it defies description there. Well, no, let's uh, evaluate it in God's sense. A congregation can get too large, and you can have too much money, and you can get something done too soon, as it were. It's in the Father's perfect timing that we want to accomplish uh, everything that we do, you understand. Now, a second issue here out of this, recognize, he says in verse four, uh, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. And you understand that God receives the glory when it's the son who's glorified. And there's a relationship there between the father and the son. And it says that uh, it is for the glory of God, and here's the purpose clause, so that the Son of God may be glorified. So the noun glory is attached to God, and the verb glorified is attached to the Son. And we want to identify what is it that God desires. It's not that the Father is unworthy of glory. He certainly is. It's not that the Holy Spirit is unworthy of glory. He certainly is. Father and Spirit are both equally glorious. They're equally divine. They're equally omnipotent. They're equally every, All the attributes of deity apply to the Father and they apply to the Holy Spirit as well as the Son, of course. However, 
God does not desire to glorify himself. It's his greatest desire because of the love for his son to glorify his son. You understand. And so that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to live our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ, uh, to be fellow workers with the father. The father is busy uh, glorifying his son. If we're going to be the father's fellow workers, then we need to be glorifying the son. So this, uh, this second principle there out of point three, God receives the doxa, the glory, when in his son is the one that is doxadzo, glorified. That's a principle we want to keep in mind. What do we do when we, uh, and how do we glorify Jesus Christ? Now, uh, I'm going to move on here to point four, but, uh, and I didn't expand on this with subpoints, uh, but we can simply reflect on what we already studied. We had a pretty comprehensive study on glorification in 1 Corinthians. All right, and okay, so now I'm thinking about it. It was three or four years ago. Uh, you remember it, of course, okay? Um, understand how do you glorify God? Primarily, it has nothing to do with worship. It has nothing to do with what we usually think of with glory and uh, glorification. Doxadzo comes from docheo, comes from, it's a thinking word. And what do you think? What think ye of Christ? What is your estimation of Christ? Do you hold him in high esteem? Do you hold him in low esteem? And the practice of glorification is the activity of influencing somebody else's thinking pertaining to Christ. Communicating by your words, communicating by your deeds, communicating by your thoughts, communicating by how you conduct your life. Whether you hold Jesus Christ in a high regard or the, whether you hold Jesus Christ in a low regard. See. Now there's one illustration that I can make here today with everyone here today. Uh, by virtue of you being here today, uh, you have communicated that Jesus Christ is worthy of your time on a Wednesday morning. That the study of God's word is a priority. And by living your convictions by illustrating and demonstrating your priority structure, you're communicating to your neighbors, friends, associates, family, anyone, to yourself, to your children. You are communicating that you hold Jesus Christ in a high regard. See, conversely, of course, if you blow off Bible class, if Super Bowl or other things take priority, if you could take it or leave it, if you have a take-it-or-leave-it approach to doctrine, what are you communicating? You are telling the world what your regard is for Jesus Christ. You're saying, well, you know, I might say one thing, but my actions disprove it, don't they? What speaks louder, the actions or the words, right? So, that's why Scripture says, by your fruit you shall know them, not by the, the flowery words they talk about, okay? Uh, so, how you communicate your regard if you communicate a high regard, then you're glorifying God. And when you're commanded to glorify God, like the, the passage we studied in 1 Corinthians was in chapter 6, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. See? And you realize that your bodies are to be instruments of righteousness, they're not to be tools of, of the flesh or lust or whatever. And so you communicate your high regard. That's what glorification is. It's a communication of your high regards that you influence somebody else in their estimation. See, the wonderful thing about opinions is you can actually um, convey in a contagious kind of way. If somebody else has a very low esteem for something, a, a low respect, a low estimation, they view something as being rather worthless or, or a waste of time, well, then you can come along and say, oh, no, 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 what are you talking about? Wait a minute. Let me testify here. Let me show you. Look what you can do with this. Look, look what value this has. Look what a blessing this is. Think about this. And then somebody else, then whoever you're ministering to, kind of looks at it again and says, you know, I never, never thought about it in those terms before. I never really looked at it that way. Wait a minute. You know what? Maybe, uh, maybe there's something I ought to revise my view on whatever it is. Okay? I'm just talking generally. You can, you can apply this to any scope of, or application or any concept um so when you deal with glory and glorification that's what we have to understand we don't produce we don't make god more glorious when we glorify him that's the snare if you fall into this trap thinking that if i don't glorify him then he's less glorious 
Or when I do glorify him, now he has more glory because I glorify him. That's not the case. He is absolutely, eternally glorious whether I glorify him or not. We want to identify the fact that uh, the biggest problem with glorify is, uh, and I forgot to turn my clicker on, so let me just get rid of that, is the phi in English. Phi means we're, we're changing something, okay? If I liquefy, if I purify, if I magnify, if I mystify you with all this illustration, okay? The phi, normally in English, phi means I've changed something. You understand that? And that's the biggest obstacle is our English word glorify. Glorify, the biggest obstacle to understand doxadzo is that the English word glorify has that phi ending. Which means that if I'm glorifying God, it's like liquid, liquefying or magnifying or, or um, any other phi out there. Because the phi means we're changing something and we can't do that with God. So it might be the best our best ally in this is to get rid of any phi terminology for doxadzo. And instead of using a word like glorify, which takes a lot of explanation, just go ahead and find another way to communicate what glorification actually is, which is communicating our high regard and influencing other people so that they have a high regard. We want others to have the same high regard for God's word that we have. See, and that's what we're commanded to do. So communicate your high regard and influence others to increase their regard. That might be the best doctrinal uh, translation then of doxadzo. So um, for the glory of God, for the uh, considered evaluation of his worthiness, we must communicate the worthiness of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's emphasizing here in verse 4. All right. Jesus remains two days longer in the Perean region. Why? Motivated by his love. Motivated by his love. His love is specifically stipulated in verse 5. And it's not the girl's opinion. It's not the crowd's opinion. It is a statement of divine inspiration. The Holy Spirit in the inspired text uh, confesses the love that Jesus has for Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, I don't know if there's a significance to the order of the names there. A lot of people have written about it, pondered it. Why doesn't it say uh, Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha? Um, Why does it say Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus? Okay, that's a why question. We can't always answer the why questions. All right, that's the order they put them in. So when Jesus heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is faithfulness to the plan of God. This may not make sense in human terms. I hear that there's something happening and my first reaction is, oh, I've got to get there right now. I've got to be on the scene. I've got to be there. I've got to help. I've got to pray. I've got to do something. Okay. Particularly if uh, the, the sisters are all upset, you've got to get here fast. You have to get here before he dies. You have to keep him from dying. That's their, that's their priority. And, and they, they boo-hoo about it a couple of times. By the time he does get there, and he's already been dead for four days, uh, their, their uh, complaint is, it's your fault, Jesus. You didn't get here fast enough. Literally. Had you been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it is, the, it is his fault for not getting there in time. See, it's like it's God's fault. Uh, in, Abraham, in Adam's opinion, Adam uh, blamed God for the fall. So it is the woman you gave me. Right? You ever think about that? What was he saying? Give me the wrong woman. You should give me a better woman. Why'd you give me her? You could have given me a woman that wouldn't believe the snake, that wouldn't give me that fruit to eat. It's, it's not my fault, God. You gave me the wrong woman. Give me a better woman, I would have done, so. I'd have done better. Okay. If you had been here, and twice now, Martha says it, Mary says it, this is what they've uh, uh, agreed to in their commiseration with each other. This is the conclusion. They've both come. Uh, they, they've come to this. It's, it's Jesus' fault. He, didn't, he wasn't there. He wasn't there when they needed him. 
And even when they asked him to get there as fast as he could, he didn't get there. You know, a guy that can walk on water, a guy can get places pretty quick if he wants to. Hmm. You know, how do you blame the omnipresent God of the universe for not being there? He's there. (laughs) How do I know he's there? Omnipresent says he's there. He's everywhere. Okay. Now, of course, the locality of the human body of Jesus Christ is monopresent, one place at one time. But he could have been there and was not. And so they blame him. And that's what we're going to evaluate when we uh, look at the reaction here and the weeping that then follows. But motivated by his love and his desire to not arrive too soon. The desire to not arrive too soon. So he heard that uh, Lazarus was sick. He then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Couldn't leave immediately. And then, after this, he said, okay, it's time to go. This is the moment to arrive. Not too soon, not too late. Understand that. Your test, health test, marriage test, employment test, whatever. Not too soon, not too late. The Father's perfect timing is in all of that. Now, you'll notice, down in verse 21, here comes the complaint. Um, Verse 20, Martha heard that he was in town, uh, went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. That's kind of backwards. Normally, it's uh, you know Mary that rushes to Jesus' feet, and Martha has more dishes to do or something. Uh, and this time, Martha goes out there to Jesus, and Mary stays at the house. And Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, there it is. It's your fault. Why weren't you here? Don't you love him? Why did you let him die? Okay, um, down to verse 32 then, same thing. Mary saw where Jesus was. She saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, they're communicating an, an if. It's, it's, it's called a counterfactual, an if that's not actually true. But if it had been true, then this is what we think would be the result. And the truth is, we don't know that. We make assumptions. We don't know any counterfactuals because we don't have the omniscience that God has. See, we can think or presume or suspect. We might have, um, we might have uh, good ideas or rough ideas, but the truth is we don't have any clue. We can't possibly know. See, if I had not become a pastor, I would have been what? Fill in the blank. Okay? I would have been a homicide investigator. I would have been whatever. I would have been miserable. <laughs> All right. Whatever. We can but we the thing is is we don't know. We don't know. See. If I had not married Sharon, I would have whatever. So think that when when you when you do the what if scenarios, okay? The truth is is we don't know. We don't know any of the uh, what would have been different? I mean, we know right off the bat a few obvious things that would have been different. But then down the road, what would have happened a year after that, two years after that, ten years after that? We don't know. See? But God does. He knows all of the counterfactuals. He knows all of the what-if scenarios. And uh, the, the final verse here is verse 37. Uh, this is the crowd now. Uh, some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying. Kept him from dying. See? And this is, again, the assumption shared with the sisters that, you know, if only Jesus would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Well, that's what the girl said. The crowd now is taking it one extra step. They took it one extra step to say, you know what? That's why he was late. He deliberately got here late because he knew that he couldn't keep Lazarus from dying. Say, could he not? Oh, I bet you that's why he didn't get here in time. He knew he couldn't stop the guy from dying. That's why he deliberately showed up late. And uh, this makes the miracle all that more uh, powerful as the Lord, oh really, I couldn't have kept him from dying? Well, guess what? All right, so we'll see how that uh, how that unfolds here as well. But let's um, keep in mind all, this principle here. I think addresses a lot of issues. A lot of issues. First of all, uh, like 
uh, a test has to be finished sooner rather than later. Wait a minute. That's an assumption on your part. That a test, it's better for a test to be shorter rather than longer. Well, wait a minute. That's only a human viewpoint that says that. What if it's the will of God for this to be a longer test for greater glory? Or that um, it's better off for bad things to not even happen in the first place instead of for to go through a bad thing and then have to deal with it on the other side. Well, wait a minute. Why am I disagreeing with the plan of God? God's plan called for Lazarus to die. God's plan called for Mary and Martha to grieve over that for the, th- for the four days that it took place. And presumably, again, in later years down the road, they, they're going to go through it all over again. All right. So consider some of our assumptions that I think this passage really addresses in a lot of things. We have these, uh, I think they're just ingrained. This concept, like, oh, well, God would never want a believer, would never want you know, me to, some bad thing to happen to me. Well, wait a minute. Bad things happen to everybody. God provides for you so that his son gets glorified. And when the bad things happen, you have a chance to draw closer to him. It provides an opportunity for more spiritual growth, for more insight, for more uh, fellowship with God and his word. And, and why do you think you're entitled to some kind of carefree, problem-free, uh, millennial panacea? Jesus wasn't entitled to that. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He had conflict, hostility. They hated him, and they crucified him. So whatever mentality I develop that thinks I'm somehow, I, I don't deserve that, well, that's just arrogance. It's evil. Because a, ma- a slave is not above his master, a disciple is not above his teacher. If, if Jesus didn't get a, a free pass, why would I be entitled to a free pass? I'm not. If anything, I, I ought to be hammered far, you know, far worse. I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed. I'm not tested any more than I am. I would just, you know, sometimes I think, man, what kind of wuss problems do I have? And, you know, I'm not tempting the Lord or anything, but, you know. All right. So, uh, that's the fourth issue here. Now, when we get into the notification, point five, Jesus notified his disciples that they were returning to Judea. Telling them ahead of time, this is where we're going to go. And um, they, they knew very well how dangerous it was going to be. I think probably for those two extra days, they were kind of sweating a little bit and then kind of breathing a sigh of relief and going, whew, yeah. You know, you can imagine James and John kind of saying, man, I'm sure glad we didn't run, run off to Judea again when we got that news about Lazarus. I mean, yeah, bummer for him. But, you know, we, if we showed up, we'd be in danger, you know. Well, he says, you know what? It's time for us to go. We're going back to Judea. He said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, uh, Rabbi, uh, bad idea. <laughs> the Jews were just now uh, seeking to stone you. The idiom just now referencing, you know, the last time we were there. Okay, have you forgot about that, Jesus? Maybe you forgot about that. Let's remind you here. Um, last time you were there, they they tried to kill you, and uh, that's where you want to go back to. Okay, and he says, "Yep, absolutely." Jesus answered, "Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him." Uh, it's a, it's a a uh, paraphrastic answer. You know what a paraphrastic answer is? It's a fancy Latin term that scholars like to use. It's a around a, a roundabout. That's what paraphrastic is. It's a roundabout kind of answer. It's like beating around the bush. He's not exactly telling them literally, but he's taking them down a line of thought that once they work their way through it, they're going to figure out what he's talking about. And it's a neat way to uh, to teach certain things. All right, he notifies them that they're returning. They're not happy about that. The disciples are concerned for his safety, i.e. their safety. <laughs> Lord, uh, might be a little dangerous for you. Right? Meaning us too, right? Uh, if you want the background on this, uh, you can go back to John 8:59 and John 10:31. 
the two episodes that were associated with the Jerusalem ministry during the um, Feast of Tabernacles, when he at first uh, did not go up, told his brothers that they could go up, and then he went up a couple days later in secret. And, um, and yeah, there were two episodes there where they tried to, uh, first of all, they tried to stone him, and then they tried to crush him. They tried to mob him, and he slipped away from their grasp uh, on both occasions there. So that's their concern. Jesus had another concern. He's concerned that, uh, that they're going to stop walking in the light. Jesus was more concerned that his disciples would stop walking in the light. And that's what he's driving at here when he says, Are there not twelve hours in the day? Are there not twelve hours in the day? Let me rephrase that. Uh, you know, if, well, he goes on to say, you know, walk in the light. Um, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Well, how much longer is the light of the world going to be there? How much longer? And while he's there, they need to walk in the light, see? If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Um, during the hours of light, you have the privilege, the opportunity, the, the blessing to be able to walk in the light. And it lasts 12 hours, you know, roughly in the half of the time in light and half the time in the day, light and day division here. So the point being, where are they going to be if they don't follow him into Judea? They're going to be in darkness. Yeah. Because he's going. So if they uh, decide, you know, uh, they're not going to risk their neck. <laughs> well, where are they going to end up being if they don't follow him back to Judea? He's the light. He's the light of the world. And how much longer is he going to be there? See, so um, while I'm still with you, he says in other passages, while I'm still with you. You know, you have a parallel text here back in Matthew chapter 6. And I, you know, you see it in Matthew 6. You see it here in John 11. You see light. Uh, messages that are given elsewhere and you wonder was this one of the more common messages that Jesus taught them over and over and over again about walking in the light Matthew 6 verses 22 and 23 the eye is the lamp of the body so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. See, he gave his disciples warnings on a number of occasions about light versus darkness, about keeping your eyes clear, about keeping your eyes focused where they need to be focused. And if you're not focused on the light, what are you filling your heart with? If you're not saturating your mind with truth, what is your mind going to degenerate into? Or as Romans 12 puts it, if you're not being transformed by the renewing of your mind, then what are you being conformed to? Conformed to the world, we're told there in, in uh, Romans chapter 12. So the concern here when he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? It's... Uh, you ever heard anybody tell you never answer a question with a question? They've told you that? Yeah. I like, telling, I like asking them more questions when they tell me. You know, well, why not? What's wrong with that? You know? Well, Lord, uh, are you seeking to go there again? The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And it's their incredulous question, like, are you out of your mind? What are you, you're not going back there again? And then so he has a question for them. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Well, yeah. <laughs> That's Jesus' answer too. Like, well, yeah, I'm going back. Of course, there's work to be done. All right. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Of course, reference there to himself. Other applications of that. Um, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Then he said, and after that, um, he said to them in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may waken him out of sleep. And this is our next principle. Why does he use this wake up metaphor? The disciples, by the way, they didn't catch on at all. They said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll, he'll, he'll recover. <laughs> 
We don't have to go, Lord. If he's asleep, he'll wake up. The disciples were too earthly minded to understand Jesus' wake up metaphor. They're not listening. They're not. Um, they're not uh, going to follow the, uh, uh, the the paraphrastic explanation that he gives them. Remember, twelve hours in the day and walking in the light. They're not following the message when he talks about Lazarus being asleep. They're just not following the message. And uh, I, I think you ought to evaluate why aren't they following? What, what, what is it about his line of thought that they're just not tracking with it? See, like when he tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and they're all wrapped up over the fact they forgot to bring bread with them on the, on the boat trip. See, and uh, completely oblivious to the fact that he had multiplied the loaves and fishes and he provided for them. And he wasn't talking about earthly bread. And I think we, we see it again and again and again where they're locked in on temporal life thinking. Earthly minded. See, when we're supposed to be heavenly focused. Our attention is supposed to be on the things above. Um, you know, if, if uh, you know, and, and this is with anyone. My dad's got some sickness going on. Other folks, Beverly Farrell and, and her cancer and other things that are going on. Let's, let's not lose the spiritual test because we're so busy praying for the earthly stuff, the physical stuff. Okay? Let's pray that believers can glorify Christ in their testing. Meaning that they can communicate the high regard they have for Jesus Christ to sustain them through anything that is that they have to face. Pray that they can uh, take advantage of opportunities. Pray that they can communicate their witness. Mitchell's a good example of that. Mitchell, uh, one of the things he's thankful for is most of his life, he's 40-something years old, but for 30 years, uh, the bulk of his time has been in hospitals instead of out of hospitals. And he's had opportunities to talk to nurses and talk to doctors and talk to different folks about why he's not afraid of dying. Wow. You put it that way, you start to think about things. Hey, wait a minute, that's right. I, I haven't had nearly the open-door opportunities to talk to as many doctors and nurses and, and things like that. In fact, I avoid talking to as many doctors as I possibly can. All right? If, if I, I figure it's a successful week if I've talked to no doctors and no lawyers and in any particular week, then it's been a pretty good week. But he's had a chance to testify to doctors and nurses and folks and to learn lessons Learn lessons of dying grace. We were praying because just two days ago uh, in uh, Washington State, Pastor Bruce Einspar did a uh, funeral service for an 11-year-old little boy, a little boy named Joe, uh, the fourth child of a six-children family, third youngest. And um, he's saved. He's in heaven today. His siblings are saved. His parents are saved. Um, and, and you think, man, this is, this is a horrible test. I can't imagine it's a part of me that just cannot imagine losing a child. See? And yet, is, is God less fair this week than he was last week? Is his plan somehow rocky this week when I was, was finding dandy last? It's a perfect plan. A perfect plan last week, a perfect plan this week. And what is it that this family is going to learn? What are the parents going to learn? What are the siblings going to learn? What's the pastor going to learn? What's the whole church going to learn? How is it going to draw them closer? How is it going to equip them? What's it preparing them for? And we may not know the answer to that anytime soon or ever, but God knows the answer to that. All right. So, if you're earthly minded, you may not be catching on. And that's the thing here. You might be slow to catch on to certain things. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And you know, the, the wake-up metaphor might actually be more literal than metaphor. Let's read down through verse 16 here. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. So Jesus spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes. Now, see, he, here he starts to explain why he has inner happiness and spiritual joy in the fact that they didn't just run off right away and get there in time to keep him from dying. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. See, they have a faith deficiency. 
this, of course, doesn't mean that they're not saved and, and that it's not, it's, this is what it's going to take for them to get saved. Uh, their faith is applied to believers far more often than unbelievers in a lot of different ways. And so here's believers that need to have their faith increased. And it's going to be increased through this episode here with Lazarus. And he's glad that he didn't hinder the death or keep it from happening, that he's able to actually overcome it four days after the fact. And so therefore Thomas, who's called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And you can view that as a mopey, uh, doubting Thomas, kind of discouraging um pessimistic kind of thing or which most people do because of the other episode with thomas or you could even view it as a positive statement saying all right guys let's go let's do this let's go die and he's saying it in a positive expression you know like peter later on saying lord i'll die for you kind of a thing and um you can uh, you can read it either way and i'd, I'd be hesitant to um, cast aspersions on thomas just because of this statement here all right boy there's a lot of work to be done on that thomas who's called didymus you know what didymus means didymus means twin okay twin thomas is an aramaic form of of things there anyway didymus so who was thomas's twin one of the other 12 disciples who was thomas's twin I'll get Dan to answer that tonight on our question and answer night. Now, um, nobody knows, to be honest with you. Nobody knows. Uh, but there's all, no, that doesn't keep anybody from guessing, and it certainly hasn't kept a whole lot of uh, Catholic legends and traditions and things popping up, including some of the most uh, far-fetched and even, I might add, blasphemous um, suggestions. The wildest one of all, of course, is that uh, Didymus is Jesus' twin. Right? He's called the twin. Well, that's a problem, folks, because uh, Jesus was virgin-born, sinless, perfect. And, uh, yeah, the father didn't give Mary uh, twins in her womb. Gave Mary uh, a son, we're told. All right. Now, this metaphor of sleeping, why does he even use it in the first place? Why doesn't he just say, you know what, um... Lazarus is dead, and we've got to go raise him like we did the widow's son at Nain, and like we did uh, the, uh, Jairus' daughter, the synagogue official's daughter. He's already raised two from the dead. This will be his third one. So he has an opportunity to say, you know what? Yep, he's dead, but we're going to bring him back like we did those other two. He doesn't say that. He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I go to waken him out of sleep. And I think there's a clue here. And What I wonder about... And I put this in, in the small print at the end of point C. Uh, in these cases, the souls may very well be literally sleeping. Let's look at two other episodes. We'll see some other ones later on. Um, yeah, we'll see the rest of them here under point uh, six. But in Matthew 9.24, the phrase is used, Matthew 9.24, uh, this is with uh, the daughter here. And you wonder, you know, would Jesus have been in time if this other lady hadn't stopped him along the way to the lady that had the 12-year hemorrhage, came up and touched his cloak, and Jesus felt the power coming at him. Um, anyway, he gets to the official's house, the flute players, the crowd in noisy disorder, and he says, leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up, and the news spread throughout the land. So there uh, he, he does say, she's not dead. She's fallen asleep. See, And yet in Mark and in, in the other p parallel accounts, she plainly has died, and the language states that he brought her up from the dead. So why does he use the word sleep when he's going to raise her from the dead again? Uh, Acts chapter 20 and verse 10, this is... Uh, um, this is the Bible class I went too long, and uh, Eutychus was sitting in a window. Um, I've, I've gone long occasionally, but this I've yet to have anyone drop dead because I went so long. I also don't let people sit in the windowsill. I also pastor churches that are only single-story churches. <laughs> All right. 
But I think about this a lot. One of my favorite places to read for two years in the barracks in Germany, I, I sat in the windowsill and read. I read a lot of books in the windowsill. That was a third-story windowsill in, uh, in the barracks. So uh, anyway, um, a young man named Eutychus sitting in the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and picked up dead. But Paul uh, went down and fell upon him and after embracing him said, Do not be troubled for his soul or his life is in him. Is in him. When he had gone back up and broken the bread and eaten, uh, he talked with them a long ta- uh, while until daybreak and then left. I bet you nobody fell asleep after that. Yeah, I bet you the whole congregation was just wide awake, locked in, even all night long until morning. And then he wrapped up Bible class and said, "All right, let's go get some breakfast." You know, I think there was a Denny's nearby. Um, but why use the metaphor sleep? And what with the expression here, his soul is still with him. Okay, and this is my theory on it. And I'm, I'm pretty convinced of it. Um, death is, ag- what would we define death? Death is when the soul departs the body. Okay. Uh, we read that in Genesis. When Rachel died, her soul departed. Okay. That's the definition. Your body is officially dead when the soul isn't in it anymore. Okay. Doctors try to measure brain waves or heart function or whatever. But the, as far as the Bible records, when the soul is no longer in the body, it's a dead body. Because your soul spirit has been carried off to be with the Lord. So, um, I believe in these cases where in God's sovereignty and foreknowledge, he knows that these dead people aren't going to stay dead, that they are uh, only mostly dead. They are, um, you ever see Princess Bride? Okay. They are mostly dead in the sense that they're for the moment dead until either Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, Paul, somebody uh, makes them alive again. Okay which for most of the cases was minutes or hours rather than days. Lazarus is the longest one. Uh, We'll see that. Um, I believe God puts them to sleep. That he actually keeps the either uh, takes the soul out of the body, but leaves it right there adjacent to the body or actually puts it into a hibernation within the body. Makes more sense to me uh, because of the phrase his life is still in him. That the, the soul is put into a sleep, is put into a hibernation. Then for all intents and purposes, the body appears to be dead. There's nothing that animates anima, the animal, the, the body. is no longer animated at that point because the soul is, is uh, put under into a sleep mode. And, and the reason why, I believe, because our God's too merciful. Okay? Our God is too merciful to give. I, I think Paul was the only one that, was able to glimpse the things that are not able to be spoken. He was given a glimpse. And then, and then when he was sent back, he was sent back and given a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being... So, I don't think Lazarus for four days was getting a grand tour of anything. I don't think Lazarus for four days was awake and alert and aware. I don't think he knew he was dead. See... Same thing with the widow's son. Same thing with Jairus' daughter. Same thing with the Old Testament examples we're going to see here in a minute. I think the use of the metaphor sleep is designed specifically for a reason. And our God in his mercy, with the folks that he allowed to die physically for a short time before returning back, I think he put their souls to sleep and did not uh, instruct the angels to carry them away to either Abraham's bosom or or to paradise, see, or to heaven so that uh, he wouldn't have to return them back to physical life, you know, and, and then give Lazarus a thorn in the flesh then to, uh, to humble him. Okay. Paul's the only example that we know of that actually uh, had a waking, conscious awareness of heavenly glories. Uh, it's the only example we have. So that's why I say may very well be literally sleeping. And, uh, and that the... Um, hibernating soul then caused the body to undergo the decay process. That the uh, the body started to the body died because the soul was placed in that hibernation. So anyway, if, if uh, that's my working theory, and we'll find out when I get to heaven. Uh, but I think it is consistent with every passage of scripture that I put to bring to bear on the uh, on the subject here.
All right. Four days in the tomb. Why was he dead for four days? Four days in the tomb allowed for Lazarus to exceed the time frame for the Jonah Jesus resurrection pattern. We're studying Jonah right now on Sunday, and there's a pattern there. On the third day, or three days and three nights, but on the third day, Jesus rose again. On the third day, uh, the, the fish spit out, or the whale, the, you know, the sea monster, spit Jonah out on the beach. All right. And the time frame for that is exceeded here with the four days of Lazarus. And so this is what we have detailed in verses 17 through 37. And um, repeatedly, repeatedly we're told here, four days, four days, four days. Oh, Lord, he stinks. <laughs> okay. When Jesus came, he found um, that he'd already been in the tomb four days. So it's a good thing that uh, they delayed two days um, so that uh, this time frame could exceed the pattern of the Jonah and Jesus story. Lazarus is not illustrating the um, Jonah Jesus resurrection pattern. He's teaching something else. Understand that. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. I got through this a little bit of this already. Uh, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. All right, Martha, what are you saying? <laughs> what are you asking? We mentioned this last week. Uh, all he said in verse 3 was, you know, behold, he whom you love is sick. Okay, what do you want me to do about it? You want me to hurry up? You want me to show up? You want me to heal him? You want me to keep him from dying? They didn't say any of that. They just said Lazarus is sick. You love him. He's sick. And here she says, even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. But she's not coming right out and asking. Lord, bring Lazarus back. So Jesus said to her, of course, he knows what she's thinking here. He said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Now, here's where four days shouldn't make any difference, because four days don't make any difference if 2000 years don't make any difference. You know, the resurrection of the last day is who knows when that's going to come. So time is not a barrier to resurrection. And yet, uh, maybe in part of Martha's mind, uh, time is a factor in resuscitation, for that matter. We'll evaluate that, I think, here as well. Uh, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And that doesn't really seem to be a comfort to her. Uh, she wants him back now. <laughs> you know, I know, okay, fine, we'll see him again when I get to heaven, or I'll see him again, you know, at some point. But humanity sometimes, even though that's a truth, even though it's a provision, it still falls short sometimes in our human viewpoint, doesn't it? I'm sure that family in Washington State is grieving over the loss of their 11-year-old. I know they're comforted by the fact that they will see him at the trumpet. Or they will see him sooner if they, if they physically die before the rapture of the church. But at the very latest, they're going to see him at the, at the trumpet. All right? And uh, is that a comfort? Of course it's a comfort. But is it the same as seeing him today, wanting their little boy back today? Yes, Lord, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I'm going to detail this in our main point seven, so just stay tuned as we break down this resurrection and life message. All right. Um, then through the rest of this, um, when she had said this, uh, she went away and called Mary uh, secretly saying, the teacher is here, is calling for you. And so she gets up quickly and was coming to him. And then uh, the Jews and the crowd and their reaction and the different things here. Um, notice the time frame again. Jesus uh in verse 38, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Uh, now there was a cave and a stone lying against it. He said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. The length of this time is significant. It's significant to the text. It's significant to the people involved. 
And I don't believe it's an accident. I believe the fourth day becomes then what sets it apart, what sets it beyond anything else, that he is decaying. See, of course, that's all going to get undone here when he's restored, when his body is is uh, is risen. You know, is that any different than what we're going to expect at the rapture of the church when the dead in Christ rise first? The dead in Christ rise first. That means Javier rises before we get transformed. See, it means your dad rises before our body gets transformed. It means Gary rises. And everyone that's died from the whole history of the church up until that very day. And uh, what's the condition of their bodies now? Okay. Dust in, some, in many cases, most cases. All right. It's not going to thwart resurrection. It's not going to thwart the power of God. God who creates the universe and all the dust can put a body back together again. All right? It's not like it's a Humpty Dumpty story, okay? God can put the thing back together again. Now, um, what is significant... Oh, my... 11 o'clock? Okay, i got three minutes. All previous... All previous physical life resuscitations were unburied, recently deceased individuals. And I'm sorry if you find that distasteful. I rephrased it four or five different ways. At one point I had freshly deceased. Uh, They were fresh corpses. All right. Unburied corpses. Um. A couple of them came close. The widow's son was actually in a casket on the way to the funeral, in a procession on the way out to the burial ground. So he got close to buried. Um, and one actually was thrown into a grave where his cadaver hit the uh, bones of Elisha and then came back alive again. So he actually made it into the hole, but was back alive before the dirt was poured over top. Um <laughs> All previous physical life resuscitations were unburied, recently deceased individuals. This is a record. This has never been done before. So, and we don't have time. We've got, we'll have to come back to this next week. Um, 1 Kings 17, verses 17 through 23. That's uh, Elijah and the one that he rose, he brought back to life. Second uh, Kings chapter four verses thirty-two through thirty-seven. That's Elisha, and the first of two that he brought back to life. Second uh, Kings thirteen twenty-one is the second of two that he brought back to life, even though he himself was dead when he did it. All right, and think about it, Elijah, the most powerful prophet since Moses, but Elisha received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Remember that. So if Elijah raised one. It only is natural to consider that Elisha is going to raise two, double portion of Elijah's spirit. And then what does Jesus do? He does three. So Elijah did one, Elisha does two, and Jesus does three in, uh, in his earthly ministry. And uh, we find them in Luke 7, 12 through 15, and Luke 8, 49 through 55, the uh, widow's son and the... Um, Jairus' daughter, the synagogue official's daughter. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, you can read those if you like between now and next week. uh, Or don't. We'll uh, we'll go through them together in class next week. And then we will evaluate their claims that it's Jesus' fault. Their what-if scenarios. If you had been here, he would not have died. They don't know that. It's not true. But it also communicates their human viewpoint, a failure to understand the purpose for different things that have to happen in uh, betraying their attitudes. We'll pick up on that and uh, understand that sometimes if God is going to be glorified, then the answer is not to avoid our problems. The answer is to accept what he's called us to accept and see how that glory is increased on the other side of the test. So we'll... uh, We'll get back to that next week. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, for our time together in the word. Father, for the uh, encouragement that uh, the resurrection and life message is. Um, we're never going to die, Father, because we have Christ. And even if we do die physically, um, we will live again, Father. We understand this passage details spiritual and physical life and death. 
we, uh, we can have the right perspective, Father. And we're thankful. We are absolutely thankful, Father, for the fact that, that we've been born twice and we face at most one future death. Father, uh, my heart goes out to those that have only uh, been born once. And uh, without being born again, Father, they are still subject to two future deaths. And it's that second death for all eternity in the lake of fire that, that uh, well, Father, is a motivation. We want to be able to proclaim Christ to this lost and dying world. So, Father, work in us to have your attitude weeping as the uh, fields are white for the harvest. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.